Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the writer John Logan and the director Alex Timbers, two of the creators of the new Broadway adaptation of Baz Luhrmann's 2001 movie musical hit, Moulin Rouge. Logan is the Tony-winning writer of the play Red, as well as the play I'll Eat You Last, and the Sting musical The Last Ship, and also a busy screenwriter of films including Skyfall, Gladiator, The Aviator, and Hugo. Timbers, meanwhile, has directed everything from the off-Broadway hit Here Lies Love to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Oh Hello on Broadway, The Pee Wee Herman Show, and Rocky. And his latest Broadway production, Beetlejuice, just opened in April. Both Logan and Timbers are here in the studio with me to talk elephants, windmills, hit songs, and working with Baz. Hello. Hello. Hi, Alex and John. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Um, So I'm talking to you maybe not quite two weeks after you started previews uh, at the uh, Al Hirschfeld. How's the show going here in New York? Oh, show's great. We're having a, a terrific time. The uh, the audiences have been wonderful, and it's just exciting to you know we've been working on it for about a year since our Boston run. Right, and that was in, that was last summer. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. And uh, and so there've been all these sort of ideas that have popped up, and we and so it's just great to get real time feedback on them. Yeah, it's also nice to get the show to our friends. You know, people. I mean, we've been right. talking about the show for so long, and people didn't get to make it to Boston to say. Well, what is this thing you've been working on? I mean, right. so we'll come see. That's right. You know, and that's that's thrilling to have your friends and family come in and just just enjoy it. And how different is? You mentioned it's been a year, and you've done some work on it since then. How different is what we are seeing on Broadway from uh, what audiences saw in Boston? I, John, would, say, I yeah. would say you know we've been refining, we've been refining, shaping, having the time away from Boston to say you know we can do certain things better. We cut a song. Mm-hmm. We you know we cut down. What the was show. the song? Uh, we cut "Shake It Out" okay. from the show yeah. uh, for dramatic reasons. Nothing to do with the song. We of course, love yeah. the song. It was just narrative momentum, and as things were changing with the emotional truth of the characters, then music had to change as well. But I'd say we'd cut ten minutes out of the show in right. Boston. Yeah. yeah. What was the biggest takeaway from uh, the that you learned from those those uh, out of town audiences? I would say for me as the book writer, it was we were we were sort of fumbling the ball a bit in the second act emotionally. I don't think we were we were quite charting through Christian Satine's emotions clearly enough. Mm-hmm. And I felt their motivations maybe were a little fuzzy at certain points that we, we maybe sort of papered over with really great music and spectacle and staging, but it wasn't rock solid. So I think the majority of work I've done with, with Alex on the book is tightening, shaping, and giving a real emotional trajectory to those two characters. Right. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. We've been a lot focused on the second act. There've been some stuff, you know, in the, throughout that we wanted to plus, but it's a lot about like a sort of a narrative economy. How do we make it funnier? How do we make it 
um, the show more emotional? How do we make the characters more emotionally rich? And and I think John's done amazing work on on the the sort of just going through all the character relationships and deepening them. And it, I, I I see it. I see people who who saw it in Boston see it here, and they're just like it. It feels like it's it's dropped to a deeper place emotionally, and that's that's really rewarding. Right. Yeah, and the, the balance with that is we've also sort of doubled down on the spectacle of the show. We've been able to do things. <laughs> really? If you, if you can believe it. <laughs> you know, in Boston, it was a little black box production. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but we, you know, we felt there were certain, certain things we weren't quite delivering in terms of the enchantment you feel when you watch the movie. So we sort of, we, we sort of explored that more. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how you both got involved. Uh, I know the process has been, you know, three or four years for both of you. It sounds like who who got on board first? Do you? Uh, so I was at a, back in summer 2013. I was at a dinner party uh, and I was seated next to Baz for the the dinner course and <laughs> and uh, and then the dessert. We got to talking about movies. And what is your what for you was Baz Luhrmann's work as a director before you knew him? Was that at all influential? Oh on yeah, you hugely influential. I mean, about? I had I had a theater company yep. um, uh, that do, did work that was sort of like taking historical figures and subject matter and put them in sort of a reverent and sort of contemporary um, sort of idiom suited to them. And so, uh, someone like Baz, of course, is like a huge influence. And so, yeah. I, I was curious about his influences. So I asked him about. Uh, we were talking about Ken Russell, uh, who's oh, yeah. someone that Logan and I both love. Mm-hmm. And I was like. Do you, do you, do you love Joe? You know, like, and, and so we started just going, and he, he had seen Blay Blay Andrew Jackson and Here Lies Love. And the next day, I got an email from him that said, Hey, you know, I, I'm thinking about adapting Moulin Rouge for the stage, uh, but I don't want to do it myself. I want sort of like a next generation me. And, and would, would you ever consider? And I was wildly flattered. Right. And then the next question is, who, You know, who's going to write it? And, and, right. and that's where, you know, John Logan, a hero of mine, came into view uh, okay and so how did that, why what makes john good for this job john's <laughs> a, well john's just an incredible writer because he straddles all sorts of genre he has straddles the mediums of you know he writes plays musicals movies tv uh-huh. um so he's incredibly nimble incredibly fast he's great at elevating genre is great at writing great emotion and comedy right next to each other and uh and he just uh, he has like this sense of like uh, economy and uh, a kind of sophistication that sometimes th- those don't always like sort of coexist in authors. And so immediately when you look at his body of work and then you think about the Venn diagram of all that, Moulin Rouge might sit squarely in the middle of it. Yeah. Right. And John, what did you think when the idea was? Uh, you know, I, it, the first I heard was an email from my agent saying, would you be remotely interested in writing the book for the stage musical Moulin Rouge? And I emailed back, yes, and it's the best idea I've ever heard. Why? And so, because because I know the movie intimately. Mm-hmm. and um, Because you saw it a lot because you love it? or Because I love it. Yeah. Because I saw it and it was, I thought it was, I'd never seen anything like it. And when you see something original, truly original in cinema, you have to pay attention. I, I felt right. the same way when I saw Taxi Driver for the first time. I said, I've never seen that thing done like that before. And Moulin Rouge had that incredible combination of cinematic ledger domain and incredible truth behind it mm-hmm. that I found, you know, ravishing. Mm-hmm. And so I knew instantly it could it could work on the stage. And then then when I talked to Alex, I was incredibly excited because I had seen Heroes Lies Love right. and Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. One of the one of the gifts of the many gifts that Alex has is creating an environment. That you go into these shows and you're enveloped in a complete world. You don't walk in, look at the proscenium, the curtain goes up, and there's a Libsyn play. You're, you're part of an entire world. So from our first discussion, uh, you know, over the phone, 
we talked about wanting to be immersed in the Moulin Rouge. The audience member would walk in and the Moulin Rouge would be the envelope for all the melodrama, all the comedy, all the emotion. And once we sort of were speaking the same language and had a shared vocabulary about that, it was it was effortless. It was off to the races. Yeah, I, I called our producers after our conversation, Carmen and Bill, who are who have been wonderful, and just immediately was like, "Oh my God, we have a kindred spirit here!" Like you know, we we're just speaking the same language, and, and and John and I hadn't talked before that, but like all our assumptions about what the the strengths of the material are, what what might be possible in the theatrical adaptation, immediately we're speaking the same language, and it's been that way since. It's been really exciting. Tell us a little bit more about that. What are the strengths of the material in your eyes, and what was uh, essential to what do you feel is essential in the story and in the property that you wanted to preserve or find an equivalent to uh, on stage? Well, it's, you know, the, the essential thing about Moulin Rouge for me is, is it is a passionate presentation about love. And the genius of Baz Luhrmann is to take a period story, a La Boheme story, a Traviata story, and put popular music into it. And so it had this frisson between a classical structure and cheeky irreverence at rock and roll. And so I, I was always excited by that, and we were always excited about it. And Alex, you know, from the first call, you know, the, the idea was we would update the score and bring in the world of modern popular music to, to the piece. And why was that important? Well, you know, when people, when audiences saw the film in 2001, everything was calibrated to have a, a certain... Uh, immediate response for them, whether it was Queen, a Queen song that might feel like a throwback or something that felt much more contemporary. And, um, you know, early on, it just felt really important to us that the audiences in 2019 have the exact same relationship. So we've updated the score with a, a lot of more, you know, uh, artists that have made music in the intervening 18 years, but also even gone further back to like Cab Calloway. So um, it's been it's been really exciting. We've been able to sort of, I, I think, double down on the um, what uh, Baz and the music supervisor did for the film. And, and we have something like over like 80 songs uh, in it. You know, yeah. one of the other things that was really like exciting, interesting challenge, and you know, we talked about from the beginning is, you know, what is the theatrical vocabulary uh, for for something that is so cinematically virtuosic? What it, what do we do where we don't have whip pans, we don't have like music video style editing, we don't have like sped up steady cams racing through the streets of Montmartre, um, and so what? what that's been a lot of the, the journey over the last couple of years as well is saying, like, how do you visually, uh, narratively, um, emotionally give the same, have that same sort of energetic feel and make something that is holy for the stage? Right. Because because the demands of the stage are very different than the demands of, of cinema. And what we have on the stage is things happening in real time. There's a temporal reality. And the classical musical structure is you meet a character, you learn about that character, the character expresses themselves in song. So when we were building the story, building the book, creating the characters, teasing it out, we looked at it as an original musical, like we were doing South Pacific. As a new plot was emerging, as character backstories were deepening between the characters, we thought, all right, here's an opportunity for a song that isn't in the movie. But our show demands this song. And that was, that was thrilling. What, how um, would you say, for people who haven't maybe seen the musical yet, or maybe they know, know the movie, what... Uh, how much of how much of that story is new did you end up how much how much of what we see on stage is a jumping off point from the film and how much is it sort of reflected in the film itself i would say the dna of the piece is very similar it's a heightened operatic cheeky fun sexy presentation of the story of christian satine and the demi monde of the moulin rouge 
I think the particulars of the narrative are very different. I think we, we go in different directions because the stage both demands that we do that and allows us to do that. And, you know, in the intervening time since the movie come out, I think we, we've, we've begun to look at some things differently. And we're in a different, we're a different moment. And, of course, the, the setup in the movie is that Satine, the courtesan, does not sleep with the Duke. You know, and Alex and I thought, is it perhaps a more interesting idea if she does sleep with him? So the romantic triangle between Christian, the Duke, and Satine has more theatrical vitality, sort of in real time. So once we made that rather straightforward decision early on, it impacted the rest of the plot working through. And I think, you know, that you have certain demands of the a protagonist in a musical, you know, they really need to be taking agency at every possible opportunity. They can be like Charlie Brown. They can be getting up to the football. The football can get yanked away. But uh, at every possible moment, we need to keep uh, making sure that uh, Christian and Satine are making positive, active choices. And that's that's just not necessarily the demand that is put on these characters in the film. And, you know, the whole sort of framing device is different in the film. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so it's been exciting. And I have to say, you know, to Baz's credit, like he, here's like a beloved masterpiece. I mean, one of his many masterpieces, but like uh, every step of the way, he's been like, go do it. I, I love it. You know, and, and at certain moments, he's also been like an incredible true north being like, I love what you're doing with like the Duke, but just remember that he serves X, Y, Z function emotionally at this moment. And you're like, okay, got it. Okay. Here's a way to bridge both our ideas. Uh, that was actually one of my questions. What uh, is some of the good advice that you've gotten from Baz or the uh, notes that you've gotten from him as he's been going along? You know, one of the, one of the, the probably best pieces I've gotten from, from Baz, and I, I would say without, without hesitation, he's the best dramaturg I've ever worked with in terms of looking at a piece diagnostically. And in, in an early workshop, uh, we had sort of a darker version of Christian as a character. We went we went down sort of a Logan and Timbers road with the character. Christian, <laughs> we should say, is the uh, Ewan McGregor um, yes. That's right. character yes. for people who don't know. Yeah, and so so Baz was able to talk to us about the character and what that decision meant in terms of the stakes, in terms of the love story with, with Satine. It was very useful. And in, in no way was it make it more like the movie. It was make it true to the story you're telling so you'll have the most emotional response. Because, because he always comes back to one thing, which is the audience has to feel right. at the end of this show right and alex you just worked on another um screen to stage adaptation with beetlejuice right it was there anything that you learned on beetlejuice that you could apply to moulin rouge and and or how are these two projects very different in terms of what your work is well you know i i think that uh with with both projects we had really the luxury to sort of say okay here's the here's the world uh here are the characters here's the basic story and then um we're given the 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 sort of grace to sort of make our own choices about what theatrically might be most exciting i think one of the things that's been been really fun about both of them and i think moulin rouge's uh stacked full of them is the sort of easter eggs of moments and and images and ideas and song quotes from the film that you're Sort of, you might not even know you're hungering for, but delivered in ways that are surprising, unusual, and inherently theatrical. And that's really the most fun because the, the movie is so witty. And to be able to deliver that, that moment that you love from the film, but in a way that sort of catches you by surprise because it's 
done in a, the inverse way. Right. That's that's really gratifying. And, it, and it's one of the things that makes it so fun to sit in the audience and watch it because I've, I've rarely been involved with something that has such complicity with its audience. The, mm-hmm. It's a binary relationship between the audience and the piece because when a song quote comes in, they recognize it. They're excited. They recognize it. Right. They might be charmed at how we use it or shocked at how we use it, but there's a real dialogue. And it's, 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 it's fulfilling to think we've done our work scrupulously in such a way that we've planted those ideas that the audience is viscerally responding all the time to the piece. Yeah. And John, you wrote the screenplay adaptation of Sweetie Todd, which is kind of the reverse process, right? Taking a, scre- mm. taking a stage musical and putting it on screen. Did you learn anything from that uh, that... Some at all applied to yeah ab- absolutely I mean I spent five years with Steve Sondheim working on that screenplay so I got to understand the mechanics the engineering going into the guts of building a musical and you know one of the things that Steve was so insistent on is that if a book scene exists without music it has to justify itself and it has to be a link in a way uh, between things and I, I found that incredibly useful right Let's talk a little bit about. We started to talk about a little bit about the music uh, and the new stuff that you've uh, interpolated in. And you've got all sorts. Like it's not a it's not an insignificant amount of new music. Right? <laughs> it is it is a ton of newer stuff that has that is newer than two thousand one. And it's like Beyonce and Katy Perry and Rihanna and lots of other people. Um, what was that process? Who comes up whose idea is what song and what like where do where do the ideas originate and then what is the process of sort of deciding whether they're right for a moment or for the show in general it's uh it's really uh, for me i think probably the most enjoyable part of the three years i the, agree yeah. Yeah, yeah the music supervisor is a man named justin levine who's a genius and his encyclopedic knowledge of music from tin pan alley and before all the way to like tomorrow is astounding and the way we worked is it was very interdigitate. That as Alex and I were building the story and discussing it, you know, I came up with an outline. And then Justin came into the process. And uh, the, the, the sort of weekend I think Moulin Rouge came to life for me mm-hmm. is the three of us were locked away in a, in a hotel room in Times Square. Um, and I had note cards. And I said, here's what I think the story is. And we spotted in the songs. And, and Alex suggested songs. I suggested songs. And Justin Levine suggested a thousand songs and he played them and he, he had a keyboard and we got to explore different different opportunities and all the way along the three of us have built the piece together what songs did either of you uh, suggest for the piece that are still in there well I, su- I suggested our favorite song that we could not get the rights to oh, yes. as, as a matter of fact and I did suggest Shut Up and Dance that was mine okay, yeah, but I yeah. was almost hesitant to, to suggest it uh-huh. because these guys are ferocious and they know their music <laughs> uh, but it made it in yeah, you look, we all along the way with sort of Elephant Love Medley, all, all these different sections are, you know, it's it's so collaborative that at a, like a happy point, you kind of forget where things where things originated. And um, and I'd also, you know, mention that Sonia Taya, our choreographer, yeah. who's a total visionary and brilliant, also, uh, you know, it was like completely helpful in the iterative process of like figuring out the music and and just the the whole sort of the musical emotional life and and so it, it's that that's one of the like the, the the sort of the happiest parts is like that there's um these moments where you're like and that moment was me that moment right. was you and right. then and then yeah. we it all frothed up into a bigger thing yeah. and within a single song for people who haven't seen the show yet there are songs that are uh 
I feel like it feels like what did you say, John, before we turn the microphone? There's one that's like 25 layered yeah, the, songs. The, the, at the once. end of the first it's act, like, we yeah. call our Elephant Love medley. It's yeah. like 25 different it, songs. I, and it's just a series of quotes that all somehow managed to sound like yeah. one piece of music and form, uh, and form a dialogue between the two right, characters because exactly. we, we were always led by narrative by character there was never any point of thinking oh this is a cool song I really like let's put it in the show it was all the, the songs justify themselves dramatically either to express a character or move us forward in the plot and if you saw the workshop I mean without going through the songs that we didn't end up using we, right. we just like any other musical we had songs in certain spots and we're like you know is this is this operating in the most uh, character specific narratively efficient ways and you know pop songs in, in general like are, are are tricky beasts for the musical theater because yes. you've got a hook that happens usually about three times in a song <laughs> and you know and it, it's it, it doesn't you know usually emotionally transform and so you know usually in the bridge you find the emotional pivot for any song but a song you know it, it can get repetitive it's verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus you know at, at its most basic and so it's it's a real uh you know there's a there's a lot of sort of narrative and dramatic challenges inherent in doing this. And none of the songs were bespoke. Right. So, so that was one of my questions for you, John, actually, is, how, is that in my head, that feels probably it makes your job quite a bit harder because there is not a songwriter with you kind of working to contextualize. It, 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 just, and, makes, it just makes it different, not, yeah. not, not harder or easier, you know, because, one, because once we'd explore these songs so deeply, mm. you know, I felt we, we'd written them. You know, we, we, were, we were so invested in every, in every word. And sometimes we were led... By lyric, for example, you know Satine's first song, where she she stands alone on stage. The first time anyone is alone on stage singing a song is Satine, and she sings "Firework." And we were led to that by the lyrics, which seemed to express exactly the yearning she was feeling at that at that moment. This is "Firework" by Katy Perry, we should say. Yes, by the by. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it's a good example of how a popular song can be reused in a way that the audience hears it in a different way. So it feels like a bespoke song to, to, to that character at that moment. Right. John, you alluded to uh, one of my questions. Well, I sort of assume that at this point, you can say Baz Luhrmann and Moulin Rouge, and that sort of opens all doors, and people like Rihanna say, sure, go ahead and use my music. But I guess... You couldn't get the rights to some things. Or what, how hard was that process, and how much it was? It was an intensely complicated process yeah. because there's something like 160 composers, you know, involved in all the songs, and many of the songs have multiple publishers, you know, and you yeah. had to get approvals from everyone, including the artist. Right. And uh, you know, some people didn't want their songs used because, for example, they're working on a print show, for example. So that right. that song's spoken for, yeah. and some artists just don't like their work repurposed. For any other purpose that would they they imagine, so it's all completely understandable why they wouldn't want to be part of the show. They will regret it, however. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there were certain things that we got so frustratingly close. There was one song we had where we had seven out of eight of the approvals, and we just couldn't get the eighth. You know, and moments like that, you you just you, you sort of like shake your fist at the heavens. But uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the answer. Is there one song in particular that you really wish were in there that is not? Um, you know, one of the things, uh, no, I mean, I think we're really happy with, with the score as it ended up being, I mean, that's speaking just for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, at some point when we were denied songs, it forced us to go back to the drawing board and go into the DNA of the scenes of the characters and find different ways to express things. So it was always part of the creative process to keep teasing out the, the relationship between the story, the characters, and the music. So it was helpful in the end. And what was the thinking in terms of what songs from the movie you were sort of must-haves? 
I think it was what was most narratively like uh, helpful to us, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it was you know there were songs that you might think of as one of the big hits from the movie that we just felt weren't wasn't sort of narratively useful to us, and so it, we never felt uh, and and Baz never at any point made us feel felt tied down to any element in this in the original score. Yeah, how do you, do you find that the music operates differently in? in this music being pre-existing music that people have pre-existing associations with as opposed to working on a music uh, musical with new music the only thing i will say from that i, I would say no right. other than this important important thing to the conceit mm-hmm. is that the there are so many musicals we can name half a dozen on right. right now where the conceit is that someone is writing the greatest song ever or working on the greatest poem or the greatest <laughs> play ever um and then eventually in the second act they sing that song or they read that poem and you're like that's pretty good but what we have and what you know baz's crazy conceit is is that you have the not only this the greatest pop catalog at christian the poet's fingertips uh but you have all the like deep emotional resonance. This is the song I fell in love with. This is the song I broke up. Uh, you know, this is the song that. And and so everyone's relationship to the score is actually, in you know, highly personal. And that's that's a, a cool special sauce that um, that 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 I think makes this show really unique. Yeah. Um, and John started to talk a little bit about this, but uh, Alex, the uh, it's quite opulent, the and quite red as uh, John was pointing <laughs> out. The uh, the production and there's you know there's an elephant and there's a windmill sure, yeah. and it does it's not you don't just see it on the proscenium it's sort of up in the uh, boxes and everything. Um, w- tell us about your thinking in terms of what the world is and how you sort of thought about taking the kind of op- like technicolor kind of saturation of a Baz Luhrmann movie and putting it on stage. Well, you know. One of the things that I, I think I can speak for John and myself at the, with us is that we're always con- thinking about the audience at every moment where, you know, as John said, it's not like a curtain goes up and then a life happens on stage and then a curtain goes down. And so you're thinking about what is the audience's relationship to the drama. And I think one of the things that's really fun about this show, I would say it's true of Here Lies Love, too, is the audience is cast. The audience is cast as attendees at the club. The at certain moments they they have a voyeuristic relationship to the drama, but at the beginning and the end they are in that club, and we are all in a room together. And I think that sort of the frisson and like when Ziedler looks you in the eye or the can can girl catches you out of the corner, you know that that's so exciting. Um, and so for us, the idea of starting. Um, in England and dialing back uh, time as we sort of or, or dialing forward and, and making that journey with Christian wasn't really where where Baz's mind went first or John's mind or, or my mind. And that was the idea of like, you go to see Milan Ridge, you want to go to that club, you want to enter those doors at 45th Street and walk into this space. Right. And um, it felt important to us also to just to make, you know, a couple contrasting worlds, the world of the poverty, the grit of Montmartre, and then the like the you know what I describe as like the deluxe maximalism of the club, and uh, when you think of uh, you know people who have the versatility to create that kind of that 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 beauty and the grandeur, but also have the like clever storytelling uh, uh, skills of say how do you in a finite box create like a billion locations? <laughs> right, uh, right. You think of Derek McLean, you know, yeah. a guy who does the Oscars, but also does new group shows where you've got. 15 panels and like 45 locations right. to represent, sure. you know, yeah. in a, a 200 seat theater. And so 
so so he's where we began and then we went to Kathy Zuber and they share a studio and luckily um, the two of them you know we charted through all the color together we also had certain principles that um, were true to 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 CM and uh, uh, Baz's partner in crime and uh and and baz himself that that were things that that sort of steered them and that we used as well which is that the scenery and the costumes would all be period elements just juxtaposed in ways that might be surprising or feel contemporary um but everything was grounded in that you couldn't have like a you know a, a leather baseball cap for example right. and um and yet the lighting and the sound and the choreography could be very contemporary. And I think it's really important for mashups because people think, you know, like, well, there have to be like really rigorous rules. And that was true of Baz and CM and that was true of Derek and Kathy and myself. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's also talk a little bit about the casting. Uh, the cast is led by two sort of Broadway fan favorites, Aaron Tveit and Karen Olivo. Um, what, as you were looking for the, as you were going through the casting process, what were you looking for to sort of capture that Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor had in the film? And then what are you finding that Aaron and Karen uh, bring to it's, their it's own in, It's interesting the way you phrased that question. Um, the last thing I was looking for was, was Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor, quite mm -hmm. frankly, because, because, again, to recreate the sensibility um, of two other actors was inappropriate to what we were doing because we, we had to internalize these characters and create them the way we saw them. You know, and Arsatine is grittier and gutsier. She has an agency to, to help her family in the Moulin Rouge, you know, in a way that Nicole Kidman's character in the movie did not, because that's the way our plot evolved. So we were looking for a very different, you know, actor. And I think it's fair to say we, we really wanted an actor of color for that, for that role. Um, and in Christian, you know, it, the Ewan McGregor role was, was sort of, he really captured that sort of dewy naivete and the emotional extremity. You know, but our Christian also had to chart a long emotional journey, you know, for, you know, two hours on stage. And so that had different requirements as well. So speaking for me, you know, I sort of banished Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kim from my thinking altogether. Yeah, I, that is true that in the adaptation process, you just at a certain point, you you don't reference the movie anymore and you, you're just sort of you're in in John Logan's script and, and you're you're servicing uh, those characters that are coming alive off the page in that way. So the casting process, I think, is probably uh, for a theatrical adaptation is probably pretty different than what most people might think. Right. Yeah. And so what was it then you ended up you found you were looking for about uh, your Satine and uh, your Christian? Well, I think, you know, the first, if you, you said to me, what paints a team with one color, you know, it would be strength and courage, strength and courage. And so we were looking for an actor who had in, incredible grit and fortitude and strength. And Karen Olivo far and away represented, you know, we, we frankly read a lot of actors but there's no question from her first reading that, that she was the Satine that I was so excited about because she brings such dignity and such strength to everything she does. Yeah. And, you know, and Aaron, you know, I've loved Aaron's work for years and was delighted when he came in and read. And, and, you know, it's a voice from God. There's no question. But what really surprised me about Aaron's work is the emotional depth he goes to, because I don't think he's had a role that's really allowed him to do that before. And the way he dives into the deep end of passion in our second act, uh, you know, I found, totally I found thrilling, it very yeah. thrilling and moving. Yeah. So you both have a couple more weeks uh, before the show opens. Um, and then what's next for you after that? What's on your plate? John. 
Uh, I'm going back to LA to start a new season of Penny Dreadful, uh, which is a show that I that I run. And this is is this a sequel? Is this a companion series? No, Tell us a little bit about it. It's very different. It's it's set in 1938 Los Angeles, and it's about the history of of sort of modern Los Angeles. But uh, because the history of Los Angeles is a Latino history, mm-hmm. it also dials into folk uh, Catholicism, Santa Muerte, and Day of yeah. the Dead. So it's a, it's a combination of of really. History, city planning, racism, and supernatural uh, elements. And after that, I'm doing another musical at Berkeley Rep um, called "Swept Away" with the Avid Brothers. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and Alex. Uh, yeah. Two of my collaborators on "Here Lies Love," David Byrne and Annie B. Parson, who are both like two of the most extraordinary artists I've ever met. They, yep. They've made this incredible theatrical event called American Utopia. Yeah, tell us a little bit about this. This is it's, intriguing. It's unbelievable. It's like his, it's David's like next stop making sense. It's like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a retrospective of his career. It's a, like a kind of like a, a pulse read on America through a, this visionary artist's eyes. And the mise-en-scene of it is so striking and breathtaking and they've just done incredible work so I'm, I'm uh, lucky enough to get to help them bring it to Broadway and uh, it's coming to the Hudson Theater in the fall and it, it's it's one of the I, I, I'm so excited for New York to, to get to, to see this well I, we look forward to all those things um, thanks guys thanks for joining me and uh, happy opening in a couple weeks thanks a lot thank thanks. you That was John Logan and Alex Timbers, the writer and director of Moulin Rouge, now playing at Broadway's Al Hirschfeld Theater. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, we'd very much appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Or tell a friend. I'll be back in two weeks with the writer-actor-comedian Rita Redner, the star and co-writer of the new off-Broadway musical, Two's a Crowd. Thanks for listening, and until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.